This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I am Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hi, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Hospital DeSoto. And hey, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Today, we are so incredibly honored to have my good friend, Mark Graben. Mark is the author of the Shingo award-winning book, Lean Hospitals. He's also a co-author with Joe Schwartz of Healthcare Kaizen and the Executive Guide to Healthcare Kaizen. His most recent book is Measures of Success, React Less, Lead Better, Improve More. He's also the creator and editor of the anthology book, Practicing Lean. Now he serves as a consultant to organizations through his company, Constancy Inc., and also through the firm, Value Capture. He is also a senior advisor to the technology company, Kinexus. He has focused on healthcare improvement since 2005 after starting his career in industry at General Motors, Dell, and Honeywell. Mark is a host of three podcasts, including Lean Blog Interviews, and it's been around since 2006, and then most recently, My Favorite Mistake and Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. I know I listen to all three of these at the gym each night. Mark has a BS in industrial engineering from Northwestern University and an MS in mechanical engineering and an MBA from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Leaders for Global Operation Program. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Skip. I hope you're not listening to all three at the same time. That would be quite a... <laughs> no, no, no. Not, not and, that good. And, and Skip, that's a long workout you're having, man. <laughs> I'm, pre I'm pretty slow. <laughs> I hear you. Mark, um, once again, thank you very much for being here. And, um, you know, I'd like to know a little bit about your background specifically. You know, we're seeing more and more people, more and more industrial engineers mm -hmm. who have, I don't want to say crossed over, but they've crossed over from manufacturing to healthcare. And and tell us a little bit about about your story and how, how you made that that move from from manufacturing into, mm -hmm. into the healthcare industry. Yeah, sure, Dr. Mason. Um, you know, my, my background is somewhat stereotypical for somebody who's involved with the lean methodology. I'm an industrial engineer. So I really first learned about um, lean or the Toyota production system as an undergraduate taking um, operations management course. And what I learned then, you know, what I learned was correct, but it was just a small sliver of really what we would call lean. So I ended up out in the workplace, um, working in manufacturing operations that were, um, you know, trying you know, at Toya at um, General Motors in the mid nineties, the game plan was clear. It was to try to emulate Toyota so we could catch up to Toyota in terms of quality and productivity. One of the things that I think just, you know, really got deeply solidified in my brain uh, working at General Motors was the idea that nobody should hate coming to work. Simply put, most everybody there, unfortunately, did hate coming to work. We would joke that, you know, you'd come in the morning through security and it's like they would hand out like these little dark clouds that would just hang over your head. And, you know, please turn it back in at the end of the day. We'll do a security check. <laughs> Try not to take it home with you. And I saw the power of leadership. Um, so after about a year um, at that plant, which was managed in a very traditional top-down command and control, yell and scream and blame and shame, maybe with more swearing, 
than you might find in other settings. Um, we got a new plant manager who was an experienced GM leader who had, you know, as he put it, the good fortune to go to California to the famed NUMI plant. That was a joint venture between Toyota and General Motors. So he learned this Toyota leadership style. And then he also had skill in helping turn a culture from what it was to something better. And, you know, so I've been really inspired by that, you know, throughout my career, um, coming, having the, the, the opportunity, the good fortune to um, try to contribute into healthcare starting in 2005, I realized that um, the passion and the methodology were very transferable into healthcare. You know, it, it made it was really made me deeply sad when I first met people in healthcare who also didn't like coming to work anymore for one reason or another. They were dealing uh, with too much hassle, too much waste. They weren't being engaged by their leadership. There might have been similar patterns of top-down command and control leadership. Um, so for me, you know, lean is certainly it's it's not a methodology for building better cars. It's really uh, it's a leadership style. It's it's a culture. You know, it, it brings us problem-solving methods so that we can help healthcare organizations be the best version of what they want to be. So that's a little bit of my story and sort of part of the reason why you know I'm so passionate about um, continuing to try to help in healthcare. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we've had several um, leaders on the program in continuous improvement, and we've, we've talked about lean kind of um, tangentially a few times. And I've heard more than one person say, we do this, but we don't call it lean, or uh, mm -hmm. we do this, but we don't like to say the lean. Can you mm -hmm. describe why there might be a hesitancy to, for that? And, you know, and what is, I guess, the main difference in the methodology of lean that sets it apart from maybe other uh, CI methodologies. Yeah. So, you know, first off around um, the word, um, you know, for, I don't, I don't care what people call it. And, and, and this creates some challenges. There's a lot of variation of what different organizations in healthcare will call this. You call it the Baptist management system. Some people use phrases like operational excellence, performance excellence, process improvement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The word lean, you know, came from some MIT researchers who studied the auto industry. And part of the challenge, I knew this from being in General Motors in the mid 90s, you couldn't say the word Toyota at GM, that wasn't going to engage people either. And so these researchers had to come up with some kind of, in, in a way, they, they were hoping to come up with a less loaded term. Now we could go back in time, if we had a time machine, go back and try to participate in this meeting and try to lobby against calling it lean. They meant it as a positive, you know, describing uh, a company that got, um, you know, better results uh, across all measures, was a better environment. They were doing more with less, which sometimes that's, in a, that's also a loaded term. So they meant lean as a positive, but if you look in different dictionaries, the word lean has, you know, descriptions, definitions, including, um, you know, implying uh, that we don't have enough of something. And, and then the word lean rhymes with mean. And that's an unfortunate thing that gets thrown around. I, I think, you know, if people feel like what is happening to them is mean, whether the words lean or Kaizen or continuous improvement or um, whatever um, 
if, if people feel like what's happening to them is mean, then we should step back and reevaluate what we're doing. Um, you know, one of my mentors, somebody I've learned a lot from, um, he's, he's an American who works at Toyota in the US, Jamie Benini. Um, you know, I've heard him say, if the employees are really upset about what's going on, then that's not really lean. And, you know, it's not that change is easy or that there's any sort of magic formula. Um, but to the second part of your question, Dr. Lancaster, I think one of the things that separates, there are a number of things that separate lean from additional approaches. Um, you know, one is shifting away from kind of mandated, dictated, top-down solutions and in instead engaging people at the front line or closer, much closer to the front line. And for one, listening to them. What are the frustrations? What are the barriers to ideal care? What are the things that frustrate you and keep you late uh, at work instead of getting home to your family? You know, listening and hearing what those problems are and then engaging people and being more of a coach or a facilitator. So when I come into an organization, um, I'm not the guy who comes in and tells anyone what to do, but I try to coach them through um, understanding their problems, um, trying to get closer to a root cause. That's one powerful idea I think that comes from the lean methodology. And then engaging them in developing and testing and evaluating um, possible solutions. And you're really working on the things that matter, um, focusing on staff safety, patient safety, um, quality. So we think about focusing on problems that would get in the way of outcomes or patient satisfaction, um, improving access to care. And then if we do all of those things right, we will see part of, I think, you know, the lean philosophy final point I'll make here is that Doing all those other things well leads to better financial performance, which I think is 180 degrees different than traditional approaches to quote unquote cost cutting that often end up really alienating or demoralizing people. They might already have these programs, but do you, if not, do you think that that in the future or near future, there'll be healthcare engineering degrees that you can get, you know, almost like an industrial engineering degree, but but tailored toward healthcare? Um, that's a great question. There, you know, I'm a member of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers, and the IISE has uh, a professional group subset called the Society for Health Systems. And so through that, a, a lot of undergraduate students um, learn about opportunities to work in healthcare. I didn't discover this until a decade into my career. I might have pursued that if I'd even known that was a possibility. Um, you know, I don't know if there's a need for a different degree. I mean, we could step back and think of, you know, uh, the Master's of Healthcare Administration degree. How much specialized is that compared to an MBA? Probably a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't know if it requires a different degree because I think a lot of the skill sets from industrial engineering turn out to be very transferable. So like one, for example, like when you get very mathematical and quantitative and think about queuing theory or simulation methods that we could use in conjunction with lean methods and employee engagement to, um, you know, design a workplace, look at staffing levels and, you know, how many, um, 
operating room prep rooms are there compared to ORs compared to the number of PACU beds? And you know, so I, I you know, I, I I think maybe the answer to your question is no, but I think what we do need more of is um, opening industrial engineering students' eyes to the possibility to come and play a role in healthcare. When you mentioned queuing theory, I saw Jake's ears ears well, perk up. <laughs> yeah, because I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> no, but it's interesting that your your question, HF, and and so I, I got an MHA, and mm-hmm. um, we did have an operations management course while I was there, and it tailored all the examples which uh, was useful to healthcare. So it talked about the ED when it talked about queuing theory and, and so on and so forth. So that may be one way of of doing it is mm-hmm. get an MHA because you're going to learn operations management, um, but it's not the same as getting, uh, I guess, a full-fledged degree in it. You know, we were able to sit um, after taking that course and for the Lean Six Sigma green belt. And, and one of the questions I have for you, Mark, is I'm still pretty new at, at understanding all these different terms and what they all mean, but we had mm-hmm. uh, another physician on the program who every physician that came into his organization had them all go through a Six Sigma white belt, um, mm-hmm. and then some went on to get the black belt. And I was just wondering if you could kind of explain to our audience uh, what all those different things mean and, and mm-hmm. what does it take to, to go through that that training for those? I was about to, I'm just making, I'm thinking of um, physical belts that go around your waist and like a, maybe a white belt you can only wear in the summertime. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, don't ask me about after Easter. After. I did do karate growing up and, uh, you know, I was, my brother got to the blue belt, but I only made it to a green belt. So I was pretty disappointed yeah. in myself. Well, so, I mean, I think of, um, and again, it's just one other kind of jokey comment before getting serious again, the movie, um, The Karate Kid. And Mr. Miyagi gets asked by Daniel, what kind of belt do you have? And he, you know, we're, it's like, you know, he's, he says, what, J.C. Penney's three dollars like like that. Yeah. cents? Or, I mean, yeah. so um, there's a couple of things to touch on. Um, one, I, and I think, Dr. Lancaster, you, you maybe alluded to this and I didn't really um, say in, in response to your other question. Lean and Six Sigma have a lot of overlap because there's lineage. There are engineering tools, statistical tools that have been incorporated into both. And then sometimes organizations, this happens in manufacturing also, will have um, Lean and Six Sigma combined in some way. I hear it in the same breath all the time, Lean Six Sigma. Yeah, I I tend to think of it, honestly, to me, as Lean and Six Sigma, right? So I'll use an example. The last manufacturing company I worked for, Honeywell, had people like me who went through um, essentially a black belt program that was very focused on the lean methodology. And Honeywell at the time was developing something called the Honeywell operating system, which equivalent maybe to the Baptist management system, you know, kind of this focus on leadership and, and culture. They also trained people um, as Six Sigma um, green belts, black belts, which was then basically incorporated almost into a full-time job and then master black belts. So I think, you know, what I've seen, lean methodology and Six Sigma methodology can absolutely coexist in an organization. Um, I think you could have, like, to me, I would frame it in terms of a lean culture that also has some Six Sigma specialists in it. Because there, there's, a, there's certainly a power in engaging everybody in improvement, um, teaching everyone to be a problem solver. Maybe 80% of our problems can be addressed that way. And then there are the particularly sticky problems that might require the deeper 
rigor of, um, of, of Six Sigma. Um, so but I think there's a risk when I've seen organizations jam it kind of all together in terms of training or approach. It turns out to be mostly Six Sigma with a little bit of lean. And I, and I think that loses the real potential. Like if we break lean down into like, well, there's a couple of tools that we implement. That's not as powerful as changing the way we manage. That's not as powerful as changing the culture. But, you know, if we're going to go and train people, I, I think there, there's education, there's practice, and then there's certification. I think we can do education and practice without the formal certificate. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not bad mouthing the certificate, but I think there's a risk. And I saw this again back in the last manufacturing company I worked for. You know, they were proud that they had trained and certified, uh, it was roughly, we'll call it 500 people to get their Six Sigma Green Belt. And everybody had to do a project. So it wasn't just education, it was a project that was mentored by Black Belt, that's good. Only half jokingly, we'd say, well, if, if there were 500 belts, the completed total number of projects that were ever done was about 503. Because what happened after people got their certification? The climate, the culture, the environment didn't allow them to, didn't encourage them to go and do additional projects. So I'm like, well, it's okay, we got, maybe it was good that they got some projects done, but I think there's an even bigger risk of, you know, training and certifying people and then what? Again, so I'm not opposed exactly. to education, I'm not opposed to belts, but to me, that's not the most important thing. Sure. Um, you, you mentioned tools that are used at, um, with Lean and, and I see, on your bookshelf, I see see your book Measures of Success, and and I want to move into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I worked at the same hospital for 22 years, and I sat in meeting after meeting after meeting when we were talking about quality scores or or HCAP scores or whatnot. And you know, one month we'd be in the meeting, and the score would be higher, and we would pat ourselves on the back. And the next month, the scores would be down. Yeah, we'd be, we were wringing our hands and wondering, OK, the sky is falling. Uh, you know, this is the end of the world. But uh, and then, you know, I read I read Dr. Wheeler's book and, and mm -hmm. uh, recently I read I read your book, Measures of Success, about process behavior charts or, or XMR charts and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the light bulb went off and well, good. you know, you start you start thinking, you know, we just been looking at all this the wrong way and and. and you know how oh, Skip and I were talking before we started and, you know, process behavior charts have been around forever, not forever, but for a long, long time. Almost 100 years. Yeah, yeah 100 years. That's that's a long time. Uh, and how how much do you think they are underutilized in in, in healthcare as we as we look at our processes and and and, and maybe for those who are listening who don't know what a process behavior chart is, maybe just in a nutshell, you might could could mm -hmm. tell them a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of great questions there, Dr. Mason. Um, for one, well, I, I am pleasantly surprised, if not thrilled, whenever I see a quote unquote control chart or process behavior chart being used um, in healthcare. Um, and, and this is true in other industries. Like, I mean, th this is something that's not taught in MBA programs or MHA programs. Um, I've taken statistics classes, but I only know of Dr. Wheeler's book, Understanding Variation. 
because uh, thankfully uh, my father, who was an engineer at General Motors for 40 years, had exposure to Dr. Wheeler and had that book on his shelf. Um, so Dr. Lancaster, you, you call yourself a nerd. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd and then I picked up this random statistics <laughs> book off of my dad's bookshelf and, and, and read it. And, you know, that's the most applicable, helpful thing I've, I've, I've come across because Dr. Mason, to what you're describing, this dynamic of um, celebrating every uptick and getting upset about every downturn, every up and down in a metric or when a metric, if, if you know, you might see be in a meeting or see a quote unquote dashboard, which I think is not, that's not the right word to use, you know, like a big grid of numbers showing month by month, you've got 20 different metrics and 12 months and there's this dense list of numbers and then they, they might sometimes be color coded red and green or red, yellow, green, or I've seen some organizations it goes red, yellow, light green, dark green. And it's, it's like the number, it's like the belts. It's like, you know, how many colors of belts are there? Um, so the subtitle, uh, so a process behavior chart is for one, like if you're, if you're in Excel or you think of it as a run chart or a line chart. Um, there, there's a group, um, well, so within the NHS, the National Health Service in England, they are teaching this methodology, even like at the board level of different hospitals and trusts, as they call them there, um, to shift away from, you know, the red, amber, green color coding. Um, and they have a hashtag they use on social media. It's hashtag plot the dots. So if anything, just visualize it as a chart, like the human brain is not good at looking at a long list of numbers. I've concocted different scenarios I use in training classes and you throw the slide up and say, okay, quick, which metric deserves the most attention right now? And if there's 10 metrics, you'll get people voting for seven of the 10. Because our brains are, are we're, uh, we're visual by, by nature um, you know, most of the time. So looking at a chart that visualizes, now maybe we start seeing patterns that what we might optimistically describe as a trend maybe is more of just an up, down, up, down, up, down in the metric or you know, up, up, down, up, down, down, up. You know, it's not just strictly up, down, up, down. But sure. it, it, when you visualize it and you start, you, you maybe say, well, that metric looks like it's just fluctuating around a stable average. And so then a process behavior chart um, as a version of control chart would have us calculate an average for a baseline period, throw it down on the chart. Well, now you can start to see, okay, over time, is it just fluctuating around the average? Or you might see a chart where, huh, the first six months of the year were below average and the second six months are above average. That tells us something different. Like maybe that's not a randomly occurring pattern in the data. And then we add two other horizontal lines to our process behavior chart that are calculated based off of a baseline period of data. And we're basically... Um, looking at the point-to-point -point variation, how much variation is there in the metric from month to month or day to day? We're calculating what we call lower and upper limits on that chart. And now this equips us to, as, as Don Wheeler teaches, to separate signal from noise. Noise is that basically just fluctuation around an average. And, and so the subtitle of my book, Measures of Success, tries to summarize it, react less, lead better, improve more, right? Because when we're reacting to everything and maybe we, we ask someone to go investigate or explain or do a root cause analysis, that might just literally be a waste of time. Instead of stepping back and, and instead of trying to explain 
each up or down, we need to look at kind of the range of typical performance. And if that level of performance is not where we need it to be, we need to be a little more systematic instead of being reactive, right? So when we have noise and in an underperforming system, we need to step back and figure out how to boost performance, how to shift the average. And then when we do see a signal, one example would be a data point that suddenly falls outside of those limits that is worth reacting to. And so it serves, you know, process behavior chart serves as a bit of a filter. When should we react immediately or not? Um, it helps us evaluate the cause and effect between things that we've done to try to improve and the measures. Right, so there's risk of, you know, we have some sort of project, we're convinced we've got something that's gonna make, let's say, patient satisfaction better. And then the first two data points after this implementation are above average and we declare victory. Yep, like yep. that might still be within the range, like um, political polling always represents data, data uh, with plus minus. And if some candidates got 51% and another one's got 49%, they say, well, uh, plus or minus 4%. So we'd say, well, that's a tie. You know, uh, it, and if, if a candidate suddenly falls from 51% to 49.7, they probably shouldn't fire their campaign manager. I don't know what the parallel would be there. But, you know, in, in organization, again, like we just want to use process behavior charts to help us evaluate cause and effect to better understand that. And as we're just tracking metrics that matter over time, understanding when we should react or go investigate whether the metric seems to have gotten worse or have gotten better. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a, a funny story on that, Mark, that you might enjoy, uh, Dr. Mason, Dr. Lancaster. Seven and a half years ago when I first started, there was a physician that's no longer with Baptist and and uh, we had became uh, friends and, he called me and he said, hey, I need you to analyze some data for me. If I send it to you, uh, and I said, well, what is it? And I didn't, you know, I was still new to healthcare, and it was blood culture contamination rate. Yeah. And uh, and he said, uh, I want you to let me know whether I'm right or the lab director's right. Mm -hmm. I said, what? And I said, well, there's another option. You, you understand, <laughs> right? And he said, what's that? I said, neither one of you could be right because just can you just look at the data for me i said sure and i asked him what it was and it was like uh, 36 months worth of data so i grabbed a all i had was a pencil and paper because the calculations are pretty simple yes I, I threw out a process behavior chart it couldn't have been more predictable couldn't have been more consistent mm -hmm. for 36 months this was what we'd call Common variation, up, down, up, down, up, down, and within those limits yeah. that Mark was yeah. referencing. Yeah. And so when I shared it with him, you could tell he was disappointed. He said, so what's this yeah. thing telling me? I said, well, it's telling you that the process is doing the very best that it can do. And if you don't like it, you're going to have to fundamentally change the process. Mm -hmm. It was really funny because <laughs> you could tell that was not the answer he wanted. Yeah. The math for process behavior charts is easy. Like it is arithmetic, it's not calculus. The politics and the psychology and the human nature is the challenge. When people have spent a lot of money to implement something and they're hell-bent on proving that it's successful, we, get, we, we could get into trouble. So process behavior charts, you know, as Don Wheeler calls them, it's the voice of the process. Absolutely. The voice of the system. The story that a process behavior chart tells might not line up with the story somebody wants to tell within the organization. So that that creates yep. 
For sure. Yes. And, and, I had a very similar story, uh, and I think I shared this before with patient satisfaction and, and doing that exact same thing is they had been presenting this multiple times a week at mm -hmm. this prior organization. Um, and it was up, down, up um, you know, last week, week before, week before that, and they were presenting that. And then I was like, kind of look over the last three years of this, and there's no change at all. And I did get them to start presenting the, the run chart as opposed mm -hmm. to the old chart. I, I got them to start presenting the, the run chart, but they also still insisted on using the old chart yeah. too. Uh, so they were halfway there, but they didn't throw out the old way. They liked yeah, the red, I mean, yellow, green. Yeah, I mean, visualizing the data, you know, whether it's hashtag plot the dots or I mean, yeah. connecting the dots, <laughs> going back to the name of your podcast here. Um, but again, that breaking the old habits is more difficult than doing the math and drawing yeah. the chart. Sure. Sure. And, and I know, I know Mark, you didn't, you didn't come on this, this podcast for us to plug your book, but I am going to plug your book, uh, okay. measures for success. You know, I think that anybody who is serious about improvement, especially in healthcare, we, you, you, you need to learn about process behavior charts. And, and I, I got the Kindle version mm -hmm. and, uh, I mean, it's, it's very well-written it's you explain it in in a, just a, a way that is very very easy for you know us non nerds Jake to uh, <laughs> to under to understand it. No, I'm kidding, Jake. It, it is. It's very well written, Mark, and, and I appreciate. Well, no, it. thank you. I'm definitely a nerd. I um, you know I have once in my life picked up a book on statistics and started reading it, but I also did do these uh, great courses plus uh, lectures where I listened to one on intro to linear programming. So yeah, I, I like my nerd uh, label. I do have a question with regards to your book. You know, it, it says react less. And so I, if you read the book and then I come in the next day, I'm at my office and I want to all of a sudden start being lean and I want to introduce the lean methodology, one in my day-to-day -day work and then two, you know, maybe at the organizational level. It's difficult when you walk back in and I still have the same number of meetings in my calendar. I still have the same number of emails I need to respond to. What what exactly do you what's the first step you take to to change? Whether as an individual or as a company uh, um, related, I mean, I guess you're asking more broadly, if we want to apply lean methods and maybe we lump process behavior charts under that umbrella. No, just just lean in general, I guess, okay, going back sure. to the main theme. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think. I mean, there's a number of things. I mean, I think, you know, there, there's an underlying requirement of some foundation of trust. So like, what, how, how are the, you know, relationships between staff and their leaders? Do they know who their leader is? I've worked in some hospital laboratories where, you know, people know their immediate supervisor and they, they barely know the lab director's name. Right. So there really there is no relationship or if the lab director is out there, they think, oh, gosh, something has gone wrong. Somebody's in trouble. So maybe one, you know, in some settings, you know, I, I don't know for your situation, Dr. Lancaster, but I'm going to assume you have a good relationship with people. But we, you know, sometimes you have to do a bit of a baseline of like, you know, are we building trust, helping people understand that as a leader, you're there to be helpful. Like there, there's a big element of servant leadership in the lean methodology of the, you know, people saying like, you know, as a leader, I work for the employees. Yeah. Um, and, and to mean that, right. So there's, there, I think there's some level of, of trust and relationships. I, I learned that at General Motors, 
this new plant manager who came in as an outsider um, would spend, you know, the old plant manager was the sort of imperial type who always stayed in his corner office and rarely came out into the factory. The new plant manager was out there all the time building relationships with the, the frontline employees. And, you know, I was young and impatient. And I remember asking him one day when I saw him out there, I said, Larry, like, you know, we have so much improvement we have to do. You know, we, we, you got a lot of us who are on board. When do we start changing things? And it was one of these sort of like, uh, you know, Mr. Miyagi, oh, grasshopper <laughs> kind of moments where, you know, he probably took a breath. He was very patient with me. And he said, you know, I've, you know, I've helped turn around other plants and this plants, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, yeah, this plant's not really any different. And, and I think I know what we need to do, but the people who work here don't know that I might know. Right. And so he wasn't out there just selling, but he was out there listening. And that was a, a sea change in the, the leadership approach. And so there's, you know, there's level of relationships. And then I think beyond that, I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, baby steps, of starting small. And this is where the practice of Kaizen is Joe Schwartz is implemented at the Franciscan Health System in Indianapolis. And as I've helped people with and as we've written about, like there's and there's a certain psychology behind it. I've, I've done podcast interviews with a, a psychologist at, at UCLA who, you know, talks about how the fight or flight instinct kicks in and people get scared. And instead of telling them, don't be scared by relatively large change, even if they're engaged in it, the best way to circumvent the amygdala is to make change small. And so this idea of baby steps of, you know, um, asking people what, you know, you almost make a game of it. Like what's the smallest problem that we could work on first? What would make your day a little bit less frustrating? What would make things a little bit better for the patient? And start small and teach, you know, kind of an iterative systematic approach that people would often refer to as uh, PDCA cycles, plan, do, check, act, or PDSA. I like to say plan, do, study, adjust. Like mm -hmm. even a very small change of like, I think I should move my microphone over to the left. I'm not just implementing that. Like I might have a theory of why that might be better. And then I'm going to evaluate. And I'm like, well, okay, well now it's really getting in the way of the screen. And did it make the sound quality better? You might say no. So I'm like, well, okay, let me put it back to where it was. You know, and then I need, you know, I might get coached. On just, just by the way, I have a little bit of microphone jealousy. I, I like yours a lot. It's a good mic, but you know, it's, you gotta, yours looks, wow. You got, a good you got a good microphone there. But, you know, so as, as we're coaching people through this process and we want to ask them, this is not a suggestion box system, by the way, of like, hey, everybody write down a random idea and put it in a box. Um, you know, we're trying to coach people to not jump to solutions. And I think that's exactly what a suggestion box did. Mm -hmm. So instead we can teach people and we can ask, you know, what waste do you see? What problem mm -hmm. are you trying to solve? What opportunity is there, right? Because um, we can then coach people through if they make a suggestion that is impractical or too expensive or violates some regulation, we don't just say no, your idea is rejected, we, we go back and honor the problem or the opportunity. And instead of just saying, no, suggestion was rejected, end of conversation, we'd step back and ask, well, what else could we try to either, quote unquote, solve that problem or even make it 50% better mm -hmm. and then keep iterating and learning. And then as people 
then people are engaged and saying, well, we're working on things that matter to me. That's very powerful. Um, and then they start building confidence and building capability that allows them to maybe start tackling bigger, more complex problems. Well, Mark, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. And I know I could talk a lot longer, but I do have one question as we kind of bring uh, the episode to a closure. I think about all the um, episodes of yours in, in all sincerity that I've listened to, uh, whether I'm at the gym or whether I'm driving or whether or, I'm not walking. Or, or whether and, you're a guest, which you've yeah, done or, twice. Or, or so a guest, yeah. Uh, so one question would be, you know, of a, after doing this for 15 years, Mark, are there certain guests that really um, – made you go deeper into an area or maybe helped you connect some dots yourself after you uh, after you hung up with them? Uh, mm. Is there any that come to mind? Yeah. Um, so let me just mention two people real quick. So one, um, the, the psychologist I mentioned earlier, uh, Robert Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R. -E um, I've interviewed him a couple of times. He's written two books on Kaizen and continuous improvement. And the connections between um, psychology or what some people might even call brain science. Um, Dr. Moore, I think is, has been incredibly uh, insightful. And then um, I have to give credit, uh, Norman Bodak, who passed, he actually passed away in December, um, he's 80, he's in his mid eighties. And Norman was uh, a teacher of mine. He was a mentor. I had a good relationship with him over the last 15 years. And um, before, and so I have a podcast because of Norm Bodak. So we had done a kind of an emailed back and forth text Q&A that was on my blog. And I, I had done that with others and I thought that was fine. And then Norman gave me the gift of an idea. He, he said, you should do a radio interview with me. Like, well, I don't have a radio show or a radio station and I didn't have this cool <laughs> microphone. But back in the or, you know, in, in early, mid-2006, podcasting was starting to take root. I said, well, Norman, I can interview you through Skype, and we'll record it, and we'll publish it as a podcast. And so he was my first guest. He was my second guest. He was a guest a number of times. Um, so learning about continuous improvement from him and, like, the example that Norman set, I mean, he worked up until he was working actively and working hard until the day he died because he loved what he did. He was honest to God, a lifelong learner. Like he really epitomized that phrase where he was continuing to travel to Japan and meet you know, um, new thought leaders who he could bring to a broader audience by publishing their books or translating their books. And, and so that's one thing I admire and I, I will hope to try to emulate the rest of my career whether that rest of my career and rest of my life is one and the same, I don't know, but I want to emulate that example um, that, that Norman Bodek set. Wow. Well, well, Mark, thank you so much for time with us today. Thank you so thank much you. for the books that you write, for the, the podcast that you do, for the impact that you're making in healthcare. And just want to say on behalf of myself and Dr. Mason, Dr. Lancaster and Baptist, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, Skip and Dr. Mason and Dr. Lancaster. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, maybe someday we can turn the tables and you can come talk about what you're doing on my podcast. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you.